Good evening. As mentioned in the last lecture, the Hasidic movement and its illustrious opponents, the long battle between the Hasidim and their illustrious opponents was finally reconciled due to the tax on Torah observance by non- and anti-Torah observant movements. Hasidus was a new approach within Jewish tradition. It stuck to Jewish law and philosophy, but found new approaches and new points of emphasis. Today's lecture will focus on the collapse of the old world shtetl and the subsequent rise of new non-Torah-based observed movements. In fact, the ideas, practices, and debates of this period lead to the contemporary denominational structure of Judaism. In the middle of the 17th century, the end of the Renaissance gave way to a new ideology. And as a result of that, it became known as the period called the Enlightenment. It is an, an ideology which still profoundly affects the Western world. The Enlightenment, Enlightenment peaked between 1650 and 1850. It was a period characterized by breakthroughs in thinking, which steered the wor- world away from religion and more and more towards secularism, humanism, individualism, rationalism, and nationalism. Of all of these, it was rationalism more than any other concept which defined the Enlightenment. And it is for that reason that the Enlightenment is also known as the Age of Reason. Earlier in our lecture, the Renaissance and the Reformation, we spoke about how the Dark, or Middle Ages, were dominated by the Church and were God-focused, Church-focused actually. It was followed by the Renaissance, a transformative period that drew attention to humanity, to man, with an emphasis on the arts and classical knowledge. The Enlightenment expanded the man focus even further. At this time, the human mind, rational thought, and empirical sciences took center stage. It was an age with total focus on the individual. Because of it, many positive ideas and institutions emerged. Liberal democracy, the scientific revolution, industrialization. But this focus on man also led to ideological attacks against some of the fundamental institutions of the Western world, first and foremost against religion. Religion was viewed by many thinkers of the Enlightenment as an intellectual failing, which was displaced by the ability of science to explain the unexplainable. Thus, a secular culture based upon social progress, individual liberties, and true human knowledge emerged as a very strong alternative towards religion. Now, at some level, the less religious the Western world became, the better it treated the Jews. Christian devotees, as discussed in previous lectures, killed Jews for various reasons. We had a lecture on the Crusades and the Black Plagues and 
on early Christian anti-Semitism. And for all of these reasons, we saw that Jews were killed. The secularists in general would do no such thing because the fact that a person was of a different religion did not matter to them at all. Religion was inconsequential. To a fanatic believer in a faith, if you were a matter, ma- member of a different religion, you were a threat. You were a non-believer, but to a non-believer, you're just a fool. You can live with fools. For the first time, the Western world began to look as a Jew as an equal human being. Edicts of toleration were issued, granting Jews certain basic, if not at first, equal rights. One of the first edicts was issued by the French National Assembly in the beginning of the French Revolution in 1791, which annulled many anti-Semitic laws. Be that as it may, a world without a God-given orientation gets itself into trouble sooner or later, usually sooner. In due course, the problems with these ideas would surface and the Jews would again be victims. Judaism, Yiddishkeit, believes that for an ideal world, there must be a focus on both interpersonal man relations and God. A double focus. I remember my buddy, my grandma was a good old Polish Jew, my Hasidic background. As a young boy, she used to always tell me, for God and for man. That was a Polish event. To God and for man. You gotta be for both. Not just one. Without a focus on God, all moral values become relative. Abortion, murder, 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 Roe v. Wade, personal autonomy. Relative. You can just change it like this. Euthanasia, euthanasia, dying with dignity. Just change the terminology and it becomes not only not murder, but caring, considerate to care for others. Right? Definition of marriage can have the same thing. You can change all values, become relative. Well, as we'll see in a later lecture, a secular Nazi Germany, which a secular communist Soviet Union, creates the greatest danger of all. In a secular paradigm, you have to respect civil rights, but when it becomes convenient or necessary for various social or political reasons, to change that focus, or redefine the focus, or word, or terminology, then respect for human life, or liberties, just becomes another idea that went out of style. A God-given value system is immutable, and can never go out of style. For example, two of the most prominent, famous individuals of the Enlightenment were Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire. Both of them, despite their claims of liberty, fraternity, equality for all, were rabid anti-Semites who wrote extremely derogatory things about Jews. Rousseau, the author of The Social Contract, espoused that all human beings are equal. Yet, he was callous and merciless to his very own children. Rousseau impregnated his young laundress, his, his housekeeper, right, five times, and each time forced her to drop off the newborn 
baby on the doorstep of an orphanage. I'm not going to say the French word because I've warned before that my French pronunciation is awful. I have too many French people who are watching this video. This was an orphanage that he himself had written about. And he said that two-thirds of the babies die there within a year. And most of those that survive don't make it past age seven. So Rousseau impregnates his young laundress, Therese Lavasor, and every time drops the kid at the, door, at the door of this orphanage. Voltaire was an adulterer, and later he lived with his own niece in marriage, although he never technically got married. Encounter of the French still, if you look at still have this dichotomy between leadership and morality, always. In contrast to France, for example, the situation was different, very different on a different continent and a different revolution. In the New World, if you look at the American Revolution, it came about as a result of a synthesis of very religious, Bible-based Puritans who brought out over their ideas and humanist ideas, such as the inalienable rights of man. Let's look at the opening sentence of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We'll speak about the French Revolution soon, soon and we'll see what they believe in a Creator. The French Revolution did not have a synthesis. It was a purely secular movement, and there, the problems with the philosophy of the Enlightenment became very apparent. One of the most fundamental changes of the French Revolution, for a, until that point, very Roman Catholic France, was the official rejection of religion. In September 1792, the Legislative Assembly in France legalized divorce, um, contrary to Catholic doctrine, at the same time the state controlled birth, death, and marriage registers away from the church. Violence against this church soon spread. Over a 48-hour period, right, right after that, the Legislative Assembly dissolved the chaos. Three church bishops and more than 200 priests were massacred by angry mobs, which is called the September Massacres. Priests were then drowned in the Noides River for treason by the heads of the, of, of the French Revolution. And hundreds of more priests were imprisoned in French prisons. Later, anti-church laws were passed by the Legislative Assembly and, the, and then the National Convention, which took it up, over. Many acts of de-Christianization in 1793 were motivated by the seizure of church gold and silver, which financed the whole revolution. In November 1793, the Gregorian calendar, which was instituted, of course, by Pope Gregory the 13th in 1582, was replaced by the French Republican calendar, which abolished the Sabbath, saints' days, and all references to the church. Going to the church, the ringing of church bells, religious processions, and the displays of the Christian cross were forbidden in the age of reason in, in the French Revolution. Anti-clerical parades were held, and the Archbishop of Paris was forced to take off his own cap and put on the red cap of liberty. Street and places with any sort of religious connotation were changed, and religious holidays were banned. 
and replaced with holiday to celebrate the harvest and other non-religious symbols. Catholicism was supplanted by an atheistic cult of reason and Robespierre's cult of the supreme being. That's not for now. The French reformers, after executing the king and queen, then went on to the reign of terror and killed 25,000 counter-revolutionaries in the name of reason. Everything was okay. They were not worthy. The first time we see that murder is justified, rationalized by Western minds, which will come back to haunt the Western world throughout the early 20th century. The reign of terror for all practical purposes brought to the end the age of reason. The bloody brutality of the masses and the vengefulness against the church shocked much of France and severely tested the Enlightenment's belief that man could govern himself without God. A period of general unrest followed in France, marked by corruption, runaway inflation, and war with neighboring European states. But all of this crashed in 1799 when Napoleon Bonaparte came to power in a coup d'etat. Napoleon was a Corsican officer, and he had himself eventually crowned as Emperor of France in 1804. During the 10 years he had total power, he embarked on a series of conquests, which were unprecedented in modern history in terms of rapid advance throughout Europe. A military genius, he took France against France against an offensive against the Austrian Empire, conquered them, conquered Spain, conquered most of Russia, and he almost beat them all, becoming the master of the European continent. However, he failed eventually in Russia in 1813. In 1812, his army was decimated. That reinvigorated the Western German, the Western European countries, and they all declared war on him and defeated him at Leipzig in 1813, and again in Waterloo in 1815. Napoleon eventually gets exiled to the island of St. Helena, and he dies mysteriously in 1821, and left a lot of books for historians to, read, to write, whether it was by lead poisoning or cancer. Okay, like the JFK story, everyone has their conspiracy theory. Um, however, more pertinent to us, as Napoleon marched throughout Europe, he liberated the Jews from their ghettos. The idea of liberating Jews had been discussed before him, but he really pushed it forward. When Napoleon, in February 9, 1797, he was not yet the ruler of, um, of France completely, he was still a general, but when he entered in the Italian campaign in 1797, Anacona, Italy, he noticed people with yellow stars and yellow armbands walking around Italy. And he asked, who are these people? And they said, these are the Jews of Anaconda. And they have to wear these yellow stars and yellow bands because every night they have to go back to the ghetto. And they have, people have to know that these are the Jews. They have to go back to the ghetto at night. So he, at, he immediately told the officers, tell them to take off the yellow badges, the, off the yellow bands. And that, and that very day, he broke down the walls of the ghetto of Anaconda. And more than the Italian Jews were surprised that it was Napoleon who broke down the walls, they were surprised that the first soldiers that walked into the ghetto were Jewish soldiers. 
Napoleon would ultimately bring down the ghettos in Rome, Venice, Verona, and Padua. When he came in 1798 to the island of Malta, Napoleon learned that the Christian Templar Knights did not allow the Jewish prisoners to practice religion, and they enslaved them. He immediately freed the Jewish Jews and gave them permission to build a synagogue in Malta. And then, in 1799, he famously attacked what was then called Palestine. And he conquered Jaffa, and believe it or not, this is actually, I had this from the French, uh, the main newspaper of the French Revolution is called I'll try it. Universal. Okay. They published the May 22nd, 1799, a short statement that said, Bonaparte has published a proclamation in which he invites all the Jews of Asia and Africa to gather under his flag in order to reestablish the ancient Jerusalem. He has already given arms to a great number and their battalions to an Aleppo. He actually promised the Jews some kind of powers if they were united with him in Palestine. There is a famous letter I didn't quote it, I'm not going to bring it, because something was a forgery where Napoleon supposedly claimed that he would give the Jews a Jewish state and he would build a temple. And it's a matter of serious debate that he actually write that letter because it's found years later. But there's no question that Napoleon tried to rally the Jews in Palestine. He was not successful. Right? What would have happened in the 19th century had he been? A different story. When Napoleon camps to power in France, after this, the Jews were 40,000 people. A population population of tens of millions. They were politically inconsequential. They were not a powerful block or vote. So you can't say Napoleon had political motives for what he did. There were 40,000 Jews, and almost all of them were living in Alsace, which is in northern France. France. In Paris, there were approximately 1,000 Jews. The Jews were still excluded from businesses, from governmental uh, positions, from entering universities. That was despite the fact that in 1791, September 27, 1791, the Jews were given full citizenship. However, both the National Assembly and the National Convention never put this citizenship into play. In 1802, Napoleon declared Jews should participate as equals, like all other religions, as permitted by our laws. Uh, subsequently, in 1806, after his famous Austerlitz campaign, Napoleon made a strong push for a complete equality for the Jews, which means Jews can come into universities, Jews can have government positions, Jews can be, you know, have no, no limits on them. Immediately, there was this tremendous anti-Semitic backlash in France. The Mercury de France, one of the French newspapers, published an anti-Semitic article which they said that Jews could have freedom in France provided they all converted and all became Catholics. Okay? Many of the French nobility, Comte Moli, Comte Bouchinat, Comte Segur, and Regnier, strongly gave Napoleon a run for his money. As a result, Napoleon did something unheard of. He requested... In May, on May, uh, with a decree on May 30th, 1806, a special assembly of Jewish rabbis and leaders from all French departments to meet in Paris to discuss outstanding matters, including answering questions made by the anti-Semites. So what is Napoleon saying on July 23rd, as the assembly gets? My desire is to make Jews equal 
citizens in France, have a conciliation between their religion and their responsibilities in becoming French, and to answer all the accusations made against them. I want all people living in France to be equal citizens and benefit from, from our laws. Okay. This was a storm in Europe. Tsar Alexander I of Russia violently protested this liberation of the Jews and proposed it. He called Napoleon the Antichrist and the enemy of God because he liberated the Jews. Shortly after the main uh, church of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Holy Synod of Moscow put out a proclamation in order to bring about the debasement of the church. He, Napoleon, has convened to Paris the Jewish synagogue, restored the dignity of the rabbis, and founded a new Sanhedrin. Because the nickname of these rabbis coming together in France that year, they were called the Sanhedrin. Now, Austria protested in Prussia, the Lutheran Church sent strong protests as well. In Italy, there were protests as well. However, Napoleon doesn't care. He's running Europe. He really has no one to block him. And he was fascinated by the Jews. However, Napoleon doesn't understand Judaism. Okay? He wanted them to be accepted by the rest of European society. So he advocated that the Jews should do is put aside the things that set them apart. See, he wanted what's best. Just a part of it, at one point he said, well, one-third of the Jews should intermarry with non-Jews. His actions were very much motivated to give equal rights to Jews, but care nothing about Judaism. Okay? Napoleon was quoted as saying around this time in 1806, I will never accept any proposals that will obligate the Jewish people to leave France. Because to me, the Jews are the same as any other citizen in our country. It takes weakness to chase them out of the country, but it takes strength to assimilate them. These assembly of Jewish nobles finally met in April 1806 for the first time to answer a set of 12 questions. They were led, believe it or not, by David Sintem of Strasbourg, who was a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and they pressured him to be the head. Now, he would, it was unwilling, but in the, in the scheme of history, it was, a, it was a blessing, because even though he had to do some very fancy footwork, he pushed out most of the reformers of the conference, and eventually this conference, this would become Constituar of France, and it would put orthodoxy as always the main synagogue of France. Even though it was a flavor, it wasn't, it was times more orthodox, times less, but it was always orthodox. There would never be an official reform uh, temple existed by the state in France, like in England as well. I once saw someone wrote about Rav Kook, that Rav Kook's greatest achievement was the chief rabbinate in Israel, because the chief rabbinate, the lock, to this day, reform and conservative, getting a foothold in Israel. God forbid, we'll get to it later, what they could have done to Israel, but they never had a chance there because the, the, the rabbinate was a state rabbinate, which means that all powers were ultimately there. This assembly had 12 questions. What are these questions? Listen to these questions. It's unbelievable. Is it lawful for Jews to have more than one wife? Is divorce allowed by the Jewish religion? If, if divorce is valid, although pronounced not by the courts of justice, but by the virtue of laws in contradiction to the French code, because in other words, could you have a Jewish divorce and a French divorce. 
May a Jewish marry a Christian, or may a Jew marry a Christian woman? Or does Jewish law order that the Jews should only intermarry among themselves? Four, in the eyes of the Jews, are Frenchmen not of the Jewish religion considered as brethren or as strangers? Five, what conduct does Jewish law prescribe toward Frenchmen not of the Jewish religion? Six, do the Jews born in France and treated by the law as French citizens acknowledge France as their country? Are they bound to defend it? Are they bound to obey the laws and follow the directions of the civil code? That was Napoleon's code. Seven, who elects the rabbis? Eight. I'll tell you that answer. Eight. What kind of police jurisdiction uh, do the rabbis exercise over the Jews? What judicial power do they exercise over them? Nine. Are the police jurisdiction of the rabbis, the forms of election, regulated by Jewish law, or are they only sanctioned by custom? Ten. Are the professions from which Jews are excluded by their law? Eleven. Does Jewish law forbid the Jews to take usury from their brethren? And twelve, does it forbid or does it allow usury in the dealing with strangers, non-Jewish Frenchmen? The focus of all of these questions is obvious. Napoleon was asking the Jews to answer the great question that came out of emancipation. What is your primary identity? Are you first and foremost Jews? Or are you first and foremost Frenchmen. Now, many of these questions were not a problem. The answers are easy, but if the question is, could you marry a non-Jew? It's kind of great. If this Jewish law, look at Jewish divorce as binding, even if you have a second divorce, we know it does. So the Sanhedrin, these group of rabbis, were put into a dilemma. Ultimately, they answered him diplomatically while sticking to Jewish law. Even nine dogs. I'll do that now. After the assembly, all cheers, the Jewish people, the Jewish Judaism is accepted as the third official religion in France. First was Catholicism, second is Protestantism, and third was Judaism. Okay. And Napoleon's implemented that rabbis serve the nation till this very day, that rabbinic authority is an officially sanctioned part of the French government, it's the Constituire in France. This, of course, did not end the anti-Semitic push to get the Jews out. Napoleon's own uncle was Cardinal Joseph Fesch. He told Napoleon as follows, Sire, you, so you wish to end, the end of the world to come with your laws to give the Jews a quality like the Catholics. Do you not know that the Holy Scriptures predict that the end of the world will happen when the Jews will be recognized as a corporate nation? And he came with a tremendous pressure by Jewish intellectuals, by, by, by Tsar Alexander. By the way, Napoleon at one point tried to marry Alexander's sister. Daughter, actually. The daughter. He tried to marry his daughter, which he was, he, he was, was pushed off. He, he eventually went to war, but he did try to marry. He cared Tsar Alexander, so he was a powerful uh, person in Europe. Marshal Kalman, Chateaubriand, they all came. So as a result, Napoleon then edict a restrictive decree. And in March 17th of 1808, he put a restrictive decree which limited some of the freedoms. It's clear that he didn't want this to be binding because within three months, a lot of them were, were um, removed. And by 1811, were, all restrictions were removed. And from then on, until the Vichy government of the Nazis in France in 1941, 
Jews had complete authority in any government position. In the 19th century, there would be Jewish prime ministers of France. They go to any university. They can be have equal rights under the law of France to practice their religion as they please in France. Not only did Napoleon affect France, but wherever the, the civil code of Napoleon went, these freedoms were introduced as well. For the first time in 300 years, Portugal, which we discussed previously by the Spanish Inquisition, had a synagogue. Wherever Napoleon was in Spain, the Inquisition then stopped. However, in the post-Napoleonic world, many of the, the, the other states which we, we went back and retracted liberal laws. So in, after the Battle of Waterloo, immediately the papal states, our good friend Pope Pius VII, they took the Jews back into the ghetto, made them go ahead and put back on the yellow badges. Now, an interesting sidebar, as, as Napoleon was conquering Europe, and he's about to conquer Russia. Now remember, the first parts that we hit in, the, in, 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 in white Russia, the yellow Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, there were lots of Jews. Okay, unfortunately, in the time of the Nazis, the Jews would get hit really soon when the Nazis marched into those parts of Russia. Napoleon wanted Jewish support. He got some. For example, one of the greatest Hasidic leaders, of Menachem of Rimenov, was a big enthusiastic supporter of Napoleon and others were as well. However, others, such as the Balatanya, who spoke at length last time, Balatanya was against Napoleon. He actually supported the Tsar. And his rationale was, better the enemy that you know than the enemy you don't know. We know who the Tsar is. We know he has anti-Semitic decrees, but he's not trying to make us like Russians. Right? If we become like France, they will try to assimilate us. Okay? So the Balatanya went ahead and came against the point. Now, if you speak to some, actually, there's a decent amount of Jews who say, oh, this was brilliant, the Balatanya, because look what happened, we'll discuss in a few minutes. So in Western Europe, so many Jews got lost in the early 19th century, because of emancipation and Napoleon, you know, have hundreds of thousands of Jews assimilating and converting to Christianity. Had that happened in Eastern Europe, it would have been a parallel. And therefore, the volatility was right. Personally, I'm more skeptical. And that's for a reason, because if you look at the 19th century of Russia, and that's been the next lecture, you will see that the oppression of the Russians has become so unbearable They'll have cantonist decrees where they'll pull Jewish kids forcibly into the Russian army for 25 years to convert them. They will make so many anti-Semitic decrees that the Jews are forced into complete poverty. This would create tremendous dissension in the Jewish world. It would eventually force millions of Jews to come to America without a Jewish infrastructure, when the majority of them will assimilate. That will be in a future lecture. It will cause the beginning of communism as we know it, because most of the early communists, or many of them, were Jewish kids who had fed, got fed up with the world they live in and they threw out religion as well, and it became the impetus for secular Zionism. So I have a hard time believing, I know Chabad very much said that Balatanya was right, I'm not thinking, it's a point, you can argue the point, but I have a hard time believing it was 100% right, because you'll see the future of Russian Jewry was going to be so barbaric to the Jews, that it was going to cause so many ideologies in the late 19th century, it would actually change the world if you know it because of that. That's your future lecture. Notwithstanding, due to the forces unleashed by Napoleon, by the 19th century, all of Western Europe, except for Spain, which was the holdout 
which is only 1918, would give the Jews complete rights. Now, question. Does that mean that the Enlightenment ended anti-Semitism in Europe? Hardly. What it did is it intellectualized it and eventually made it much more dangerous. Because once the gates of restriction were, were thrown down, many Jews made a meteoric rise to the top in power, in prominence, and in wealth. This doesn't mean that despite their achievement, they would fully accept the general society. The times had changed, but not that much. In Western Europe, in the 19th century, there were no pogroms against Jews. There was one, the Hephet riots in Germany in 1890, but there were no real pogroms. The post-Enlightenment society didn't do things like that in general. But there was a new intellectual or racial anti-Semitism that propped up. What this means is that people like Baron Lionel Rothschild, who was one of the most prominent and richest Jews in England, grandson of Mayor Rothschild, could not take a seat in the British Parliament, Parliament after his election in 1847 because he refused to take an oath on the Christian Bible. It took 11 years, five elections to office, and the passing of the Jewish Disabilities Act for him to have that right. He eventually became the first member of the Jewish Parliament in 1858. In theory, the Jews had equalized rights, but in practice, it is very different. Accordingly, many Jews, many Jews, saw conversion as the best way to advancement in Western Europe. Take, for example, Benjamin Disraeli, who was twice the Prime Minister of England during the reign of Queen Victoria, and of course started the Tories. He, he built the Tories. He built the Conservative Party in England in Israel in the 19th century. He was only able to achieve that position and way before Baron Rothschild, he was already in office and was able to have mobility, upward mobility, because his family had converted to the Church of England, the Anglican Church. The attitude towards conversion could best be summed up by one of the most famous German writers in German history, even though he burnt his works. I can't, I will quote him, the unbelievable thing is that Heine himself had written about the burning of books in Germany a hundred years before they burned his own books. But Heinrich, originally Chaim Heine, who was baptized as a Lutheran in 1825, said as follows, from the nature of my thinking you can deduce that the baptism is a matter of indifference to me. I do not regard it as important even symbolically. The baptism certificate is a ticket of admission to European culture. The baptism certificate is a ticket of admission to European culture. So yes, Jews in the early 19th century were accepted into society as long as they were not too overtly Jewish. If a Jew was willing to twist himself into taking an oath in the Christian Bible, or better yet, reject his own religion, he was tolerated. If he insisted on being true to the Torah and to the Hebrew faith, the message was, stay out. Marginal Jewish identity and assimilation became the norm in 19th century Western Europe. While we don't have an exact figure for race assimilation, we do know that an estimated quarter of a million Jews, which is unheard of, unparalleled in Jewish history, converted to Christianity during this time, and countless others assimilated without converting. 
Interestingly, the assimilation rate was much higher where there are fewer Jews. In Eastern Europe, where the population at the time was almost 5 million, less than 90,000 Jews, not close to 2%, convert to Christianity in order to have an easier life and mingle with mainstream society in the 19th century. For example, Jews were banned from St. Petersburg or Moscow in the 19th century unless they converted. And we'll discuss that in the next lecture, lecture in Eastern Europe. But in Western Europe, where there were fewer Jews, the proportions were much higher, astronomically higher. The majority of the Jews of France, Italy, and Germany assimilated. One of the reasons for the discrepancy was because in Western Europe, the governments were more liberal and open, Jews were granted citizenship, and the non-Jews were generally less hostile. So the attraction to assimilate and join the mainstream was much greater. If you are welcome with hugs and kisses, you have much more of a reason to assimilate, and if you get beer bottles thrown at your head or worse. A second reason is that Eastern Europe was much more grounded in Jewish study and scholarship. Remember in my lecture on the Jews of Poland. In Poland, Lithuania, Russia were the centers of Judaism. Certainly Lithuania with all of its yeshivas and Torah study. Western Europe had been importing Eastern European leaders for generations now. They did not have a strong Jewish educational system. And as we'll see when we talk about America, where there is Jewish education, there's a future for Judaism. Where there is no Jewish education, Jews cannot survive in an open society. There were other converts to, Jew, to Christianity. Perhaps the most famous 19th century Jewish convert to Christianity was Karl Marx. Marx was the father of communism. He was converted by his father at age six. His father himself had converted several years earlier in order to be a practicing lawyer in Germany. Marx, who eventually became an atheist, is the author of the Communist Manifesto in Das Kapital, which is ironically called the Bible of the worker, because Marx was the one who was famous for calling religion the opiate of the masses. Marx was a terrible example of a self-hating, self-loathing Jew. Marx played literally all the world's problems and vices on the Jews. He had a work called A World Without Jews. Right? Violent hatred of Judaism and other Jews. You can ask your brother about self-hating Jews. I was not uncommon to such converts. Heinrich Heine, this famous German 19th century, and really one of the greatest literary figures, literature figures in the 19th century period, other than Germany, who had a little bit of Jewish background when he was younger, and he toyed with something Judaism, not really Judaism, became cynical of Judaism when he became a convert, and declared it one of the world's three greatest evils. Judaism, poverty, and pain are the three great evils in the world, said Heine. He also said that the Jews worship mammon, money, and Rothschild is their prophet. <laughs> Listen to this quote from Sir Isaiah Berlin, famous 9th, uh, 20th century uh, British Jew, in his work Karl Marx. Both Heine, first he talks about Marx's uncomfortability with Judaism, then he talks about Saul. Both Heine and Israeli were all their lives obsessed by the personal problem of their peculiar status. They neither renounced or accepted it completely, but alternately mocked it at it and defended the religion of their fathers, incapable of a single-minded attitude toward their ambiguous position, perpetually suspicious of latent contempt 
or a condensation concealed beneath the fiction of their complete acceptance by society in which they live. Right? These Jews were uncomfortable with themselves. They were constantly at unease. If you, if you look at universities today, these Jews are the most pro-Palestinian. They're uncomfortable with Israel because they don't know how to defend it, and they're Jews. I still remember vividly, it was when I was in the University of Pennsylvania Law School. A third of my class was Jewish by, by the grandparents. They had a lot of kids who were not Jewish, but they were Jewish, but probably a quarter was actually Jewish. So I was sitting next to a brilliant guy, a friend of mine, his name was Matt Borer. Matt's father was Jewish as well, although he grew up in a Reformed temple. He didn't have a apartment, so he occasionally went to the Reformed temple, as he told me. I remember I was sitting next to another classmate. His classmate makes a, a, a joke about Jews, a Puerto Rican guy. Whatever it be a metaphor, makes a comment about Jewish mothers being paranoid. I laughed. Matt, whose mother was Christian, father of Jews, was like, how could you say about Jews? It was uncalled, it was like, it was such a benign joke. Anything about Judaism, he didn't know how to deal with it. Right? Because he was uncomfortable with his Jewish background. He made a joke about Jewish mothers. So I, don't, I have a Jewish mother. He had a Christian mother. He was uncomfortable because anything about Judaism that made them stand out aware of their Jewishness. I, I read once an NYU professor who lamented how Israel is constantly making us Jewish intellectuals uncomfortable. I think that's just a, that's a, that's a contemporary example of Jews who don't know their place in their own Judaism. Concomitantly, in this age of unprecedented toleration, the term anti-Semitism was first coined. It was the product, the name given by one of Germany's greatest thinkers of the 19th century, William Barr, who wanted to distinguish hatred of the Jews as members of a religion, anti-Judaism, from the hatred of the Jews as a member of a race, anti-Semitism. In 1879, he wrote a book called The Victory of Judaism Over Germandom, which was a bestseller and went into 12 printings in just six years. Two years later, Karl Eugendering wrote The Question of the Jew is a Question of Race. He summed up what Marx said as well. Look at source number one. The Jewish question would still exist even if every Jew were to turn his back on his religion and join one of our major churches. Yes, I maintain that in that case, the struggle between us and the Jews would make itself felt even more urgent. It is precisely the baptized Jew who infiltrates furthermost unhindered in all sectors of society and political life. I return, therefore, to the hypothesis that the Jews are to be defined solely on the basis of race, not on the basis of religion. However, Jews who were dropping their religion and rising to power, wealth and prominence did not pay enough attention to the idea, these ideas at the beginning. However, years later, we know that in 1933, they'd be forced to deal with them first hand. Going back for a second, when these newfound opportunities came, and as mentioned, that the ticket to European culture and advancement, remember, Jews are very smart. And Jews are always very, very intelligent. Harvard had the most intelligent people in the world, or Ashkenazi Jews, are also very smart. 
they 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 ranked it was Ashkenazi Jews, right? And you look at the the the, the advancement of German Jews in the 19th century is mind-boggling, mind-boggling, right? And Jews were, were intelligent; they could advance if they wanted to. They they, they had tremendous drive, but not all Jews are willing to convert. A second option, therefore, seemed many much more reasonable to these Jews. That option was reform. The German Jews who began the reform movement in the early 1800s wanted to maintain some kind of connection to Judaism, but at the same time wanted to take advantage of the newly won opportunity for rights and freedoms, which was only available if you became a full-fledged member of European society. Traditional Jewish lifestyle, before the Civil Rights Act in America in 1964, <laughs> kashrus, Shabbos, national identity were barriers to this acculturation, to career advancement. So these German Jews set about dropping some key aspects of traditional Judaism. In due course, they would have the most dramatic of these deviations, which was the belief that the Torah was given to God, by to God to the Jews at Sinai. They would no longer believe that eventually. That would be for the first time in over three thousand years of Judaism that there would be a group who believe three thousand years later comes a group and says, you know what? The Torah was not given by God to the Jews at Sinai. There were other groups that I discussed previously, the Sadducees, the Karaites. They didn't believe in the Talmud. They didn't believe in the oral law or rabbinics. They believe that the Bible is given to, to at Sinai. Christians believe in that. Many of them at least. Hey, these Jews actually would come to deny that as well. But we'll get there. The first crack in the dam came from Moses Mendelssohn, who lived in 1729 to 1786. He was a brilliant intellect known as the hunchback philosopher. Despite his personal observance, he was for all ostensible, um, at least certainly in the beginning of his life, although he wavered at the end, an Orthodox Jew, he is considered the father of Reform Judaism. He was a short, unattractive person. He had a hunchback because when he was younger, he was a serious Torah student who leaned over his Talmud day and night. And he had what's called a stereotypical Jewish nose. Look at pictures of him, he had a very crooked nose. The Prussian emperor said about him, never have I seen such great wine in such an ugly vessel. Mendelssohn was a genius, a graduate of the highest German universities. He didn't even speak proper German as a kid. He learned German on his own. He was an author of philosophy books and the friend of the crown prince of Russia, of Prussia. In 1764, Moses Mendelssohn won the Berlin Academy Prize competition with his inquiry concerning the distinctness of principles of natural theology and morality, which was always called during the prize essay, and came in second after Mendelssohn was somebody who we all heard of named Immanuel Kant, <laughs> who is a quite a famous German philosopher. He came in second to Mendelssohn for his observations on the feeling of the beautiful and the sunlight. At the same time, Mendelssohn was a profound Jewish scholar and Thomas, who in his early years communicated with many of the leading rabbis of his day. Mendelssohn, who was living in the time of his emancipation, 
proposed that every Jew, this is a quote, should be a cosmopolitan man in the streets and a Jew at home. Now, the quote's actually from one of the students. That's the sum of the members. In other words, Jews should give up the traditional garb and dress like Germans. They should stop speaking Yiddish, but in their homes, they should still keep kosher in the Sabbath. Outside, German as you get. Inside, Jewish as you want. This was a fatal mistake, and a typical one for a genius. The belief that everyone else could be like him. Geniuses think that everyone could follow their footsteps sometimes. Right? Mendelssohn assumed that all Jews could repeat his matchless trick of being simultaneously respected in both Jewish traditional world and in German intellectual circles. But his ideas were an abysmal failure. And you see it first and foremost in his own family. Those four of six men, of six of children of Mendelssohn convert to Christianity. Mendelssohn's grandson, the famous German composer Felix Mendelssohn, is known as the greatest composer between Beethoven and Wagner, and his sister Fanny were baptized as children by their assimilated parents. If you read the, the stories of Mendelssohn's own family, it is preposterous how far they went from Jesus. I'll give you one of them. Dorothea von Schlegel was Mendelssohn's oldest daughter. She was born in 1764 in Berlin. In 1783, she married the Jewish merchant and banker, Simon White, and had a son, Philip. Subsequently, in the salon of her friend Heinrich Hertz, who was a Jewish intellectual, who eventually converted to Protestantism, she met and had an affair with the Christian poet Friedrich von Schlegel, after which she left her husband and divorced him. She obtained custody of her younger son, Philip, and established a salon frequented by Pike, Schelling, the Schlegelbos, and Namas. Philip, her son, Mendelssohn's grandson, will later become part of a circle of German Christian painters called the Nazarenes, who influenced the English painters in the pre-Raphaelite uh, Raphaelite brotherhood. Schlegel then wrote a net, Dorothy von Schlegel, Dorothy Mendelssohn, then wrote a novel in 1799 called Lucinda. It was seen as an account of her affair. She described her affair in detail. This was a scandal in early 19th century Germany. So she was forced to move to Paris with her now Christian husband, Friedrich, where they both married as Protestants and ended their lives as Catholics. That was Mendelssohn's oldest daughter. And the same story is repeated over and over. When Jews began abandoning their religion on the streets, they abandoned Jewish practice in the home as well. This occurred in a massive scale throughout Germany. And contrary to what Mendelssohn thought, the more Jews became like Germans, we just saw from the quotes by Marr and Dering, the more the Germans despised them. And the Ger- Mendelssohn presupposed that if Jews acculturated the German society, we act like Germans, we talk like Germans, we dress like Germans. I still remember I had some, some boys I knew that were considerably younger than me. They were modern sex kids, and they were dressing a little bit like Spanish guys wore their baggy shorts down, and they're walking in Miami Beach, and they got jumped by a, a few Hispanic Cuban boys. I said, What are you dressing like us for? Like, what are you dressing? You know, who do you think you are? You know, they know that this is not a Jewish dress, but Jews always, the natural impetus for events, meant to acculturate. Well, when the Jews did it, I went to all this converting statistics, that was post Mendelssohn. Jews assimilated in mass. And observant, although Mendelssohn was observant, he advocated a rational approach to religion. 
as a lord in Judaism as a revealed legislation. Religious doctrines and propositions are not forced upon the faith of a nation under the threat of eternal or temporal punishment, but in accordance with the nature and evidence of eternal truths recommended to rational acknowledgement. The supreme being has revealed to the, them to all rational creatures. In effect, Mendelssohn was following the age of reason, that reason trumps. I, however, he broke down certain, um, I would say, assumptions, beliefs that are starting points. Judaism always qu- has questions. But Mendelssohn said, if I can't understand it, I'm not going to follow it. That's what he proposed. And Mendelssohn said, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to follow it 100%. Because of this, although Mendelssohn saw his children off the path, grandchildren, and he died of traditional Jew, he is now viewed as persona non grata in the Orthodox world. He is viewed as a traitor who opened the door to Hitler's Holocaust and a 200-year bloodbath amongst the Jews, spiritual bloodbath. In many religious homes, I've been in them, even the mention of his name is forbidden, let alone the reading of any of his words. I remember I once met a Jew for book on it, he said, there's Mendelssohn. I said, by any chance you related to Moses Mendelssohn, he was so insulted. I, I, it's like I took a bat and hit him over the head, what do you mean I related to that Mendelssohn? He was, he was flabbergasted, I didn't suggest that. He said, I certainly hope not. Chances are that he wasn't, because Mendelssohn's children, grandchildren, assimilated. One of Mendelssohn's greatest students, now Mendelssohn was observant. You'll see that his students, you can always see a teacher by his students. And you can see, the mission says, you see the students of Abraham, you see the students of Bilaam. So the the, the Farshim asks, why don't you see the students of Abraham, you see the students of Bilaam? Look who Abraham and Bilaam is. Sometimes the teachers seem prominent. But you can see where the students end up. You can see in a generation or two where things end. Remember I talked about the Karaites? I said, look where Judaism leads them in three years. If in three generations, we see that they're disappearing, we know it's false. If it doesn't last normally in three generations, we know it's false. One of his greatest students was David Freelander. Freelander was married to the Itzik family. Itzik was a prominent German family, some of them married Mendelssohn's, almost all of them converted and assimilated into German culture. This David Freelander wrote to the pastor who was the Prussian head of religion, on behalf of several other German, Jewish, or cultured households, offering to do an open letter to this pastor teller, offering to join the Lutheran church on the basis of shared moral values. If, listen to this, if they are not required to believe in the divinity of Jesus, and might evade certain Christian ceremonies. Much of this open letter was a polemic, actually, arguing that the Mosaic rituals were largely obsolete. This proposal envisioned an establishment of a Confederate Unitarian church slash synagogue. Pastor Teller rejected it out of hand, and only after this, David Freelander began the reform movement. He then founded the secular Jewish free school in Berlin, and was one of the greatest reformers of Germany. He was one of the heads of it. This is a person who literally offered to convert in mass to the Lutheran church. Then said, okay, I can't become a Lutheran as is without Jesus. I'll become reform my religion. He was followed by his friend, Israel Jacobson, who opened the first um, uh, chapel in ceased in Germany in 1810. That was the first time it was a reform service. We'll discuss the service in a second. The first reform temple was opened in Hamburg in 
The philosophy of the German Reform Movement evolved further in consciousness, denying connection to the land of Israel and to Hebrew. This is a, a quote from the Reform Rabbinic Conference in Brunswick, 1844. As men, we love all mankind, but as Germans, we love the Germans, as the children of the fallen. We are and ought to be patriots, not merely cosmopolitan. They didn't want to say they connection to Israel, because they're not good Germans. They have dual citizenship. Look at source number three, which is the next year, the Reform Rabbinic Conference in Frankfurt. The hope for national restoration contradicts our feelings for the fatherland. The wish to return to Palestine in order to create there a political empire is superfluous. But Messianic hope, truly understood, is religious. This later religious hope can be renounced only by those who have a more sublime conception of Judaism and who believe that the fulfillment of Judaism's mission is not dependent on the establishment of the Jewish state, but rather by the merging of Jewry into the political constellation of the Fatherland, Germany. Only an enlightened conception of religion can replace a dull one. This is the difference between strict orthodoxy and reform. Both approach Judaism from a religious standpoint, but while the reformer orthodox aims at restoration of the old political order, the later reform aims at the closest possible union with the political national union of our times. In the 19th century, in the first half of the 20th century, reform Judaism completely, utterly rejects the idea of recreating a Jewish state in ancestral home, home, homeland. They rejected the idea of a personal messiah of a temple. Right? They rejected the rabbinic teaching of the idea of the exile of Galut, or Galus. Why? Because they did it, it's, and there should be in Germany. Where are they supposed to be in Germany? We're mourning the temple. We're good German citizens. Right? Instead, they view the, the Jews as a messianic people who are there to edify the people around them. Tikkun Olam. We're there for taking home. We're supposed to stay in Germany and France and the United States for turning an effective world. Right? Reformed Jews said that we're no longer in exile, and they took out, as mentioned, the prayers for the resumption of, resumption of the Jewish homeland which were incompatible to being a good German citizen. The reformers, reformers imply that for a German, Frenchman, or American to pray from the original sitter was tantamount to dual loyalty, if not outright treason, to be talking about a homeland for the Jews when you're living in Germany or the United States or France. In the United States, in, in the 19th century, and early 20th century, the reform movement officially denied Zionism, was against Zionism, was radically against Zionism. That would, of course, change in 1948 with the establishment of the modern state of Israel. At that point, the reform movement does it in a doubt face and becomes officially Zionistic. Now, they will always have a conflict. Most of J Street reform Jews, or many of them, but the, as a movement, the reform unquestionably today is a supporter of a Zionist state. What the Zionist state they want is a matter of opinion amongst themselves. They're not, they are now pro-Zionist. I think that that, that left. Okay? Moreover, the classic German reform declared that Jews in Germany are Germans. Remember the questions the Napoleon is asking? Who are you? Are you Frenchmen or are you, are, you, are you Jews? Are you Germans or are you Jews? They said we are Germans of the Mosaic, Mosaic persuasion. Right? They viewed assimilation as a humongous positive. And they focused on Judaism and religion on participate fully without any trappings of Judaism to the ghetto mentality. That was 
the beginning of reform. Now, I will mention that ultimately reform in our day left some of this radicalism. You know, in 1999, the reform had uh, mentioned about the Jews doing some mitzvah observance, pick, pick your favorite mitzvah. Circumcision is now common along reform, or, or many of the reform. And there is certainly some difference. It was, it's not like it was then. This is the roots of reform, and probably was the prevalent form of reform for almost about 1950 in this country. Along the way, the members of the reform movement coined a new term, as you just saw, to describe those who stuck to traditional Judaism. They called them Orthodox. You will find the first mention of Orthodox Jews in reform papers. Right? They called them Orthodox, which implied, of course, Orthodox, that Jews were backward, or relic to the past, as opposed to reform. Reform, which were forward thinking, modern, progressive. The Orthodox were rigid, traditional, outdated. Look at source number four. This is Rav Hirsch in collective writings. It was not the Orthodox Jews who introduced the word orthodoxy into Jewish discussion. It was the modern, progressive Jews who first applied this name to old, backward Jews as a derogatory term. This name was first resented by the old Jews, and rightly so. Orthodox Judaism does not know any varieties of, Juda- of Judaism. It conceives as Judaism as one and divisible. It knows no, not a mosaic, prophetic, and rabbinic Judaism, nor Orthodox and liberal Judaism. It only knows Judaism and non-Judaism. It does not know Orthodox and liberal Jews. It does not indeed, does indeed know conscientious and indifferent Jews, good Jews and bad Jews, or baptized Jews, all nevertheless Jews with a mission which they cannot cast off. They are only distinguished accordingly as they can fully reject the mission. I remember once hearing a gift that tells the Rosh Hashiva, and there's no such thing as Orthodoxy. You're either Torah observant or you're not. You're at some level, there's nothing as Orthodox, Torah doesn't say this, you could be a Reformed Jew or Conservative. You're either Torah observant or you're not. And that's what Rosh Hashiva is saying about this. Now, where the Reform movement would gain a strong foothold in Germany, like Frankfurt in particular, it forced its agenda on the minority. In Frankfurt, for example, it, it closed the mikvah, and in fact it cemented the mikvah, shut. They poured cement and shut the mikvah. They banned shechita, and the teaching of Torah was forbidden. The Orthodox Jews were basically run out of town. Why? You know why? Because the German reformers were afraid that while they might be able to assimilate in larger German culture, that there are these Orthodox guys still dressed with kippahs, and they sometimes have these strings sticking out, and they walk around on the Sabbath, and they don't, they don't work. And they're observed. They're, gonna, they're, they're, they're Jews. They're going to they're associate us. I don't want to be associated with those backwards Jews. They're not into the German culture of the 19th century, the educated German, home of PhDs of Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche. We don't need these people around. So they wanted them out. And they tried to coerce the rest of Frankfurt's population to push them out. Now, of course... These Jews were not going to take this. In fact, they would try to defend themselves. And in defending themselves, they were fortunate enough to have one of the greatest leaders of the 19th century. His name was Assumption of Paul Hirsch. Assumption of Paul Hirsch was born in 1808 and passed away 80 years later in 1888. He was a German rabbi best known as the intellectual founder of Torah Bidera Eretz, 
occasionally termed neo-orthodoxy, definitely not non-orthodoxy, but Reversh's philosophy, together with that of his contemporary, Azriel Hildesheimer, had a considerable influence on the development of Orthodox Judaism, particularly in the Western world. Reversh was born in Hamburg, Germany. His father was a merchant, but devoted most of his day to Torah studies. His grandfather, Mendel Frankfurter, was the founder of the Talmud Torah in Hamburg, and an unsalaried assistant rabbi of the neighboring congregation of Altona. His granduncle, Lloyd Frankfurter, was the author of several Hebrew books. So he was Swarm, including Harachs and which was a Torah commentary. Rav Hirsch was a student of Chacham Isaac Bernays, and the, the biblical and Talmudic education which he received was a result of his teacher's influence. He, in furtherance of his plan, he studied around the great Ger- German Rabbanim, Rav Yaakov Etlinger, the Aras Moner, from 1823 to 1829. He then entered University of Berlin, where he stayed for one year, and there he actually studied Bichav Rousseau with his future antagonist, the head of German reform, Abraham Geiger. They actually studied together. In 1830, Rav was elected the chief rabbi of the Principality of Oldenburg. During this period, he wrote his 19 letters on Judaism. If you have not read the 19 letters, I strongly suggest you get it. It is a masterpiece. You can get it, fellow time has the 19 letters. This was in the beginning of the Kulturkampf. Right? It was published under the pseudonym Ben Uziel. This work made a profound impression in German Jewish circles because it was something new. A brilliant intellectual presentation of Orthodox Judaism in classic German. He was fearless, uncompromising defense of all Jewish institutions and ordinances. As a sequel, in 1838, first published his Horev, which is a textbook on Judaism for educated Jewish youth, which went through all of the mitzvahs and commandments. Now, the interesting thing is, when first wanted, had actually written Horev first, but the publishers didn't believe he'd have a market for it. It was only after he printed his 19 letters, which became very popular, that he published his Horev uh, as well. In 1839 and 1844, he published polemical essays against the reforms of Judaism, Published, proposed by Holdenheim, Holdheim, Geiger, and others. He criticized the reform with thus. It is foolish to believe it is the wording of a prayer, the notes of a synagogue, tune, or the order of a special service which formed the this between reform and orthodoxy. It is not the so called divine service which separates us, rather, it is the theory, the principle of faithfulness to Jewish law. If the Torah is to you, the law of God, how dare you place another law above it and go along with God and his law only as long as you thereby progress in other areas at the same time. Rehearsed would then serve as the Rav of Moravia. He was a chief rabbi of 50,000 Jews. And lo and behold, Rehearsed was never shy, always looked for a challenge. He was asked to be the rabbi of Frankfurt in 1851. Now, Frankfurt at the time, as mentioned, the mikvah was cemented, shechita was banned, and Jewish study was prohibited. There were less than 100 members of a once formerly great German Jewish community, with, who the Pnei Shul was the rabbi, the Shlom was the rabbi, and many other great German rabbis were over Frankfurt. They had less than 100 members, and they had no building. They had no synagogue even. Hirsch took the challenge, and by the time he passed away, there were 500, more than 500 families. 
and they had a, 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 a huge congregation. Hirsch was famous for demanding that Judaism has to be applicable to all of life. Other areas, uh, I'm not going to discuss here, Zerud's own lecture to compare Hirsch's focuses versus the classical Eastern European focuses. But suffice to say, Hirsch, in the same way Hasidic innovated within the, in the law, Hirsch did as well. Right? He had different emphasis in, 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 in Jewish study. And one of the things that he engaged the modern world, he basically took this theme out of reform and said, we'll engage the modern world, but we're not going to engage the modern world we give up one iota, one principle of what it means to be a passionate, observant Jew. Right? Hirsch said, if you want to be modern, if you want to conquer the world, you want to advance all is possible, but all within the confines of traditional Judaism. There is no need to drop Torah in order for social advancement. Listen to what he writes in 1854, source 5. Now, what is that we want? Are the only alternatives either to abandon religion or to announce all progress? We declare before heaven and earth that if our religion demanded that we should renounce what is called civilization and progress, we would obey unquestioningly, because our religion is for us the word of God before which every other consideration has to give way. There is, however, no such dilemma. Judaism never remained aloof from true civilization and progress. In almost every area, its adherents were fully abreast of contemporary learning and very often excelled in contemporaries. An excellent thing is the study of Torah combined with the ways of the world. Remember, said it's not Torah or the world. It's a question of priorities. Torah is first and foremost. And that is the difference between Hirsch and Mendelssohn. Reverse also wanted Jews to be involved in the world. His Torah is first. And if you don't understand things nationally, you don't throw away the bath. Right? You focus Torah is Icar. You have to work to understand things. Moreover, Reverse separated orthodoxy from the reform movement. Until then, there was one federation of orthodoxy. Reverse believed in Austrians, which means that if the reform movement is going to go ahead and push their agenda, we have to separate ourselves, distinguish ourselves. So in 1876, because there was only one official synagogue in Frankfurt, he actually got legislation passed to have an alternative, alternative official synagogue in Frankfurt. And that's what we're pushing. There was another great sage, from Bomberger, who was a Roman Wurzburg, who said, if they'll work with you, stay with them. He himself separated in his town, because in Wurzburg, the reform would not work with them. But that became a big debate. The schism was till late in the 20th century, most of the Torah sages felt like Rav Hirsch. At the end of Rav Hirsch's life, he founded what was called the Orthodox Union in Germany. The so took its name from that Orthodox Union, which was the, the, the spiritual um, inspiration for the Ogoda movement. He was also a contemporary of another great German. Uh, my name is Abraham Israel Hildesheimer, who lived from 1820 to 1899. Rabbi Hildesheimer was also a student, student of Rabbi Ettlinger and Rabbi Bernays. He had a PhD in classical languages from Heil Wittenberg in 1844, and in 1851 he became the Rav of Eisenstadt, Germany, Hungary, which is now in Austria. And his first innovation there was to have a school where German was used, complete German, not Yiddish, and he used modern principles of pedagogy. And he, he taught secular as well as Jewish studies, the subjects. Rabbi Hildesheimer then established the yeshiva, and the yeshiva puts time into studying Tanakh and Hebrew language. And the yeshiva started with six students in 1851. By 1868, 
It had 128 students, including one student from the United States in America in 1868. And in 1869, he was invited to be the rabbi of Kahal Adat Israel, Israel, the, the chief soul in Berlin, which at the time had 200 families. He then founded a very famous yeshiva called the Hildenheimer Seminary in Berlin, the Sridei Eish, and other greats were the David Hoffman were the Rosh Hashivas of that yeshiva. He was famous for his philanthropic activities. He, they used to say that no labor was too great for him and no journey too long. In fact, he became known as the International Schnurr. He was a fundraiser par excellence, not only for his own needs, but for the needs of all Jews everywhere, including for the new settlement in Palestine. And his firm conviction was that Judaism is the religion, and we don't compromise for social advances. Look at number six. This was an address delivered, to be delivered, at his yeshiva. Unconditional agreement with the culture of the present day, harmony with Judaism and science, but also unconditional steadfast in the faith and traditions of Judaism. This constitutes the program of the new community, the standard uh, around which the Israelites of Berlin who are faithful to the law. Rav Hirsch and Rav Hildesheim were also the first great leaders who instituted Jewish education for girls. They had schools for girls, both in secular and Jewish studies. You know that schooling at the time was rare. There was a public school in that prevalent schooling generally for boys who went to that in Shiva. Their schools became the inspiration for the Beisiakal movement, the inspiration for the Ira Academy today. It was their own schools that were the first schools in the 19th century. Sarah Schneer said her inspiration was the first, the way he taught the girls in Germany. Their students also started the Agudah movement. Rav Hirsch and Rav Hildesheimer influenced tens of thousands of German and Western European Jews in their lifetime, and indirectly, between World War I and World War II, hundreds of thousands of Eastern European Jews as well, through the Agudah, it's not millions, through the Agudah, the Beisdachov, and the Karlbach opened schools in Lithuania as well. And their ideas and works have a still a very strong and profound influence to our very day. Despite the efforts and successes of the Persian Alzheimer, the reform movement still spread. And it spread to other countries as well. For example, it went to England. Now, England did not go as far as Germany. England, the reform is called liberal Judaism. They had like a Karaite position. We believe in the Bible, but we don't believe in, um, in the oral law or any rabbinics. In America, the reform movement took on its special character after it was translated here from Germany by a couple of hundred thousand German Jews. The first Jews to come to America in mass were German Jews. In mass were Jews from Germany and Austria. And about 250,000 German Jews came in the mid-19th century. Many of them to San Francisco. In fact, there'll be two German Jewish mayors in San Francisco in the 19th century. They found Temple Emanuel in 1849 with the 49ers. German Jews like Levi Strauss, of course, have become very famous. These Jews, all German, Isaac Mayer Weiss, especially, also David Einhorn, um, and Kaufman Collar, became radically reformed in America. In 1850, in his first stellar, his first position, in Charleston, Isaac Weiss declared that he didn't believe in a personal Messiah or resurrection of the dead, both of which were pillars of Jewish oral tradition and dogmas of Jewish faith. 
1857, Wise published a new prayer book which omitted the traditional prayers of the return to Zion, the building of the temple, paving the way for the reformed official declaration of anti-Zionism in the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885. Weiss went on to found a reading college. In its first graduation seminary, its, uh, graduation of its rabbinic uh, rabbis in 1883, were they served for the young rabbis? This is a quote from the newspaper. Little neck clams, salad shrimps, frog legs a la cream, ice cream, and pig. Uh, for like you bore. By the way, for those who don't know, Isaac Weiss had a son-in-law named Adolf Oaks, who had a son-in-law named Schlesinger. That is a Schlesinger who owns the New York Times. Okay, that family. I mean, the Schlesinger who owns the New York Times since the 1970s are not Jewish. They're Anglican. Yeah, yeah. One Schlesinger, the, the one who was alive with the Nazis, who did report about the Nazis in the Holocaust, he married an Anglican, so his son was an Anglican, and that's the current editor of the New York Times. But they're descendants of Isaac Weiss. In 1885, in the Pittsburgh platform, Dr. Kaufman Kohler, who's even more radical than Weiss, proposed as follows. Look at source number six. This is Dr. Kohler at the Pittsburgh conference. I do not for a moment hesitate to say it right here. And in the face of the entire Jewish world, that circumcision is a barbarous cruelty which disfigures and disgraces our ancestral heirloom and their holy mission as priests among mankind. The right is a national remnant of savage African life. Nor shall children born of intermarriage be any longer exclusively by the primitive national standard which determines the racial character of the child only by the blood of the mother. That was actually not accepted at the time. Moses would be. That would take another hundred years to be accepted by reform. I can no longer accept the fanciful and twisted syllogism of Talmudic law as binding thoughts, I think if anywhere here we ought to have the courage to emancipate ourselves from the thraldom of rabbinic legality. Basically, his words were adopted unanimously in Pittsburgh, and the platform also swept away dietary laws because they failed to impress the minor Jew. The next year, Kohler was the president, elected to be the president of Weiss's seminary, Hebrew Union College, and a year later, he declared there is no justification whatsoever for the precious time that soon to be spent upon halakhic discussions at the Hebrew College, and the inane discussion that fell so many pages of Babylonian Gemara. In fact, at the undercolor's reign, the students of Hebrew College did not ever study Talmud. They did take courses on the Quran and the New Testament. Kohler also said that we are no longer bound by Shulchan Aruch. Now, let's just jump to the Reform Movement today. The Reform Movement never established themselves in Israel. Never. First of all, historically, Israel always had a high percentage of Orthodox Jews, and even from the beginning, we'll get to what's about Zionism, what, how that happened, and why that happened. But even today, Israel is one-third Orthodox, another third very traditional. Right? Orthodox, they're dogmatically Orthodox, although not Orthodox in practice. So it always had a high percentage of religious, and also had a chief rabbi. I once read, this is unbelievable, in the 1955, the same, uh, 1950s, early 1950s, the same magazine of time, same magazine discussing the conversion of Marilyn Monroe, Mary mm-hmm. Arthur Miller, a reformed conversion. She's under the chuppah. The reformed rabbi says to her, do you want to believe in the Mosaic faith? She says, yes, I do. And he asks her, one more question, you're Jewish. 
said to Arthur Miller, let's start the wedding procession. He marries Arthur Miller under the chuppah. Marilyn Monroe, I don't think, died as a Jew. She then met a few Catholics, and the Kennedys, and killed herself eventually. But that same Time magazine discussing Marilyn Monroe's wedding to Arthur Miller discusses that Reform around like to go into Israel. They like to have a foothold in the state of Israel. And they interviewed the Reform leader who was going to Israel to establish Reform in Israel. And he also interviewed Chief Rabbi Isaac Herzog, who was the first rabbi in the state of Israel. Rav Koch was the only rabbi before the state. He passed away in 1936. And Isaac Herzog said, we will never allow them to establish themselves in Israel. Reform is Christianity without the cross. That's a quote. Reform is Christianity without a cross. Basically, it was mimicking Christianity. Go back to David Freelander. What was his original thing that he wanted to do? We want to join your church, but we don't want Christian, Christian Jesus. We don't want all of the Christian practices. Says said that was David Freelander's original intent. Reform is Christianity. So let's see what reform needs. By 1972, this is a survey commissioned by the Central Conference of American Reform Rabbis, their own internal survey. Only one in ten reform rabbi states, one in ten reform rabbi states that he believes in God. I know the two reform rabbi clergy people here, I know for a fact that one has told me they don't believe in God. I don't know about the other one here. Okay? In the, in the more or less traditional Jewish sense, the remaining 90% classify their faith in terms like agnostic, atheist, body and spirit, Judaic and practice, polydeics, religious existentialist, theological humanist. In that 1990, in the middle of the debate of the ordination of professed homosexuals, one HEC professor reminded the community that Leviticus 18, the Bible, says a homosexual act is an abomination, which the majority's retort was, this is what they say, it's pretty late in the day for scripture to be invoked in CCAR debates. Don't bring scripture into our debates. Okay? The same year, in 1990, 25% of the CCAR, their own commission, found that 25% of reform leaders under 40 had married Gentiles. That's the leaders. And by 1991, the overall intermarriage among young reform Jews had toppled 60%. And you want you to know that most of these reform Jews are not five generations. They're the descendants of Russian and Romanian Jews who came much later on in America, drifted to conservative, eventually ended up in reform. So the young generation is over 60%. In places like this, they contend it's closer to 80%. Finally, I want you just to see this last source seven. This is based off of the 2000 um, growth chart. So you can look at the chart. Happens to be this is including all Jews, so it's going to look so 46% amongst younger Jews. Obviously, the Hasidic and Census Ordinance is much lower. If you think 6 out of 10 Orthodox Jews intermarried or under 48, you can just look around the world, it's not the case. That's including people living many years ago when Orthodoxy was less established. Right? If you were 70 and 80, people were older. And look at where Reform is. It's a 46% overall intermarriage rate. With, with the, the, they don't have this very low, little marriage and very little children after marriage. So ultimately, reform, of course, due to their own theology, is at some level disappearing and at some level becoming gentle. I'll, I'll end off with one thing. You know, obviously, 
we love every reform Jew. We want every reform to do to embrace Jews. And we are brothers and sisters. We have nothing against them as Jews. We love them with all our It's a question we are, but we don't distinguish. Reform Judaism was and is not Judaism. It's not a Jewish practice. I was once asked by a reform Jew, what do you think the future will be? And I told him, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I know what it will be. It will be Gentile. He said, how do you know that? And I told him as follows. I said, as long as reform be diverted, like didn't Jews change the laws of conversion, be it Jew by choice, like Marilyn Monroe under the Chuppah, be it Tashiyama descent, be it their quote-unquote conversions, they all stay with the state of the Jewish movement. But once you change the laws of conversion, once you change the laws of conversion, ultimately, the Gentile thing only, you see that by the Christians, Christianity was an early Jewish sect. But once over time, Gentiles come in, over time they became Gentile. The temple in Emmanuel downtown, to my understanding, the majority of the board is halakhically non-Jewish. Next lecture, we will discuss Haskalah in Eastern Europe. Thank you.